Robots Radio presents... Hey everybody, welcome into the podcast. We are back with another special bonus episode. Bonus episode. Today we are reviving our My Favorite Movie series. We are here in studio with Paul Hletko, who is joining us uh, from just outside Chicago, Illinois. He is the founder and CEO of Few Spirits. They are based in Evanston, Illinois. Paul, how are you today? Uh, Doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. Now, this is actually the second time in just a a matter of weeks that we've had Few on the podcast. We did an interview with a guy named Josh Larson a couple weeks ago, who is a film critic in the Chicago area. And one of our Instagram friends from Chicago said, hey, I think you should just make this an all Chicago episode. I've got a couple bottles of this this few bourbon. Let me send some to you. And so we were actually able to feature few on the podcast then. And today we're going to go ahead and try the few rye. So we're just going to make a whole thing out of it. Awesome. Yeah, if you guys weren't able to hear that interview with Josh Larson, get back and listen to that. We want you to hear about few bourbon. And we're really excited to talk about few rye today. So, Paul, uh, we, we got a couple introductory questions here before we get into your movie, and I'm, I'm super excited to talk about your favorite movie. But I was wondering if, if you could just break down for our listeners a little bit of the history of Few Spirits, because I think just as important as, as the company's history is the location and where you're situated and how Evanston kind of plays into the mythology of Few Spirits. Yes, I mean, Few is, you know, we're a small distillery. We've been, uh, been for sale now about eight and a half years. I've been lucky enough to be able to have some growth, and we're located in Evanston, Illinois. And the interesting thing about being in Evanston, uh, aside from the fact that it's where I live and we're, you know, raise my kids and such, the actual thing that's interesting about Evanston is that it's the birthplace of prohibition. And the women that drove prohibition forward as a national concept uh, lived here. And so Evanston has always been a dry town, and basically, uh, long story short, TLDR, um, I'm the guy that killed prohibition in its home. <laughs> At a boy, Paul. Well, I mean, I think it's it's actually a lot more uh, complicated. Um, if anything, I think it's a little bit of a tip of the hat. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, in order to judge history, you kind of have to put yourself in the shoes of the people that were living it, and uh, the women that were driving prohibition forward in the late 1800s. Uh, quite honestly, didn't really have a choice. Mm. And I I, I tend to have the attitude that prohibition is what happens when people can't have nice things. And in the (laughs) late 1800s, people couldn't have nice things like alcohol uh, in the same way that it seems today people can't have nice things like, you know, guns. Sure. Uh, Everything's good until until people can't handle it. And in the late 1800s, people couldn't handle their alcohol. So... Paul, walk me through a little bit of the process of of starting up Few. I'm really impressed by your growth. You know, your website says it. You guys have basically doubled in growth every year since you've started. You're on five continents now. But I've read a few interviews about the history of the company and and what your inspiration was. And I just think it's such a great story. Well, I mean, I've got a little bit of family history with uh, alcohol. And, you know, prior to World War II, uh, my grandfather's family owned what's now a major brewery in the Czech Republic. And it was pro- you and I presume most of your listeners know what happened in 1939. Uh, but the Nazis invaded you know, the Czech Republic in 1939 and uh, confiscated the brewery, uh, murdered the entire family in the camps uh, with only my grandfather surviving. And you know when he kind of survived the war, I spent the rest of his life trying to get the brewery back, but never did. 
Mm. And when he died, it kind of struck me that all this family legacy is gone forever, you know, if I don't do something about it. And so few is kind of trying to do something about it. You know, we take it pretty seriously. It's definitely a business. Uh, it's certainly an art. And, you know, we, you know, we spend all of our day every day trying to put liquid art in bottle. Uh, but for me, uh, it's also a little bit of blood, a little bit of history, a little bit of family. And it's something I kind of hold pretty close to my heart. Yeah. Not just my liver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Paul, it's amazing how important family ties and connections are and how they really give a deeper meaning to the work that you do. And I love the way you put it, that you're putting liquid art in the bottle. I mean, that's just amazing. We like to be, yeah, we like to be artists. And yes, it's commerce. And, you know, this is a business. This, you know, this is how I feed my children, including a teenage son. So uh, <laughs> that ain't easy. Right. Um, but it is, it's all about the art and that creativity and that ability to hopefully inspire somebody out to there to be the best them that they can be. Um, alcohol is something that really, I think, brings people together, uh, brings friends together, brings families together. And, you know, in many ways, kind of like movies, right? You, know, you, you watch movies with your friends, you watch movies with your family, uh, you enjoy it, you, uh, you know, you bust on your friends with movie lines and what have you. And, the, you know, these are the things that are kind of the fabric of our social lives. And alcohol can be that as well. Um, at least in the best of worlds. Man, Paul, we're just going to take that clip and use that as our, you know, introduction to the Film and Whiskey podcast. Because we, we we so often talk about, like, you know, what do you do when you hang out with your friends? You watch movies and you drink alcohol. And, you know, we here at the Film Whiskey podcast love whiskey. But, man, what better way to describe what we're trying to do here on the podcast? No, you bring people together. You know, movies do that. Music does that. Alcohol does that. Food does that. You know, it's the companion to your life, whether it's, you know, like, you know, you guys are into movies, other guys are into music. Some people are maybe into opera or some people are into um, visual arts. You know, it's not, I, I would never say that one's better or worse than the other ones, but these are all the things that are the soundtrack or the companion to your life. And it's, it's just magic what these things can do for the quality of life. And, you know, we're pretty honored that what we do gets to be a part of that. Well, speaking of what you do, Paul, I'm just kind of blown away by the lineup that you guys have there at Few Spirits. You know, we were talking with Josh Larson, our interview guest a few weeks ago, and his exposure to Few had been that he tried your breakfast gin. And so he spent like a good portion of our whiskey podcast talking about how good the breakfast gin was. So I, I, I knew I had to at least mention to you that we've got film and whiskey listeners that are also advocating for few gin. So fantastic. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind just kind of giving us a rundown of what it is that you produce at the distillery and uh, maybe tip your cap a little bit to which one might be your favorite child. <laughs> so, I mean, at the distillery, you know, what we produce is probably about 95, 98% whiskey, uh, mostly bourbon and rye. Um, those are our horses. That's what we kind of specialize in. It's our focus. And that's great. We love bourbon. We love rye. And it's, it's awesome. Uh, gin is something we make because it's just incredibly fun to make gin. <laughs> you can make gin quickly. You can iterate. You can have all these different recipes. And there's just, there's almost no rules to gin. And for a guy like me who has a, uh, you know, quite frankly, an intense hatred of anything authority, 
the fact there's no rules for gin is fantastic. So we can be super crazy, super fun. Uh, we can break rules that don't even exist. We can do crazy, wild, stupid stuff because it's fun. And you know, case in point of that is going to be your breakfast gin. You know, it's the only breakfast gin on the market. We own the name breakfast gin, so there's not going to be another one. Wow. Uh, but, you know, your breakfast gin is the most important gin of the day. At least that's what I guess my <laughs> mom was talking um, You know, a couple of years ago, everybody was drinking their shower beers, and that was great. But, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's almost 2020, guys. It's time to up your shower game. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a shower martini year. As far as I, I was going to say, if you make a breakfast vermouth to go with it, then it's just the classiest shower of all time. As long as you say the word vermouth while you're looking towards France, you're okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My real question is, do you have to drink the b- breakfast gin with your pinky up? Uh, you don't. I mean, I, and again, I, there's a lot of people that think you can only drink gin for breakfast, but that's just simply not true anymore. Um, <laughs> this is not orange juice here, guys. This is gin. You can drink it any time of day. Uh, if you if you like drinking your gin for pinky up, then I would you know strongly suggest you drink your breakfast gin for pinky up. Um, that's not my style, but uh, you know far be it for me to to judge anybody for drinking how they like to drink. <laughs> well, we think it's always a good time to drink whiskey, and Brad and I have poured out the few rye. Brad, um, before we get into kind of giving our notes on it. I was wondering if if Paul could kind of walk us through uh, what goes into your rye. I don't know if you guys are super secretive about your mash bill, but uh, anything that you'd like to share with us about the rye, we'd love for our listeners to hear. Sure. We're, we're not super secretive about much. Um, I just don't have the time. Um, <laughs> but uh, I like and, this guy's style, Brad. <laughs> yeah, yeah our mash fan. bill, it's, uh, it's 70% rye, 20% corn, 10% malted barley, uh, which is a pretty unique mash bill. Uh, when we came out, uh, we're not aware of anybody that was using it. Um, after we kind of launched ours and started getting all the press and winning all the awards, a, a small distillery down in Litchburg, Tennessee copied it, and mm. uh, they started producing rye with that mash bill. Um, but uh, I don't think anybody's ever heard of that distillery. So no, no, super small distillery. Upset. Right. Um, but, yeah, 70, 20, 10, bourbon, uh, rye corn, bourbon, rye corn malt, sorry. Uh, and the other interesting thing about it, as far as the ingredients, is the yeast that we use. Uh, and we use a, a red wine yeast that's uh, popular in the Loire Valley in France. Wow. And so, you know, our kind of, our kind of quick breakdown on the rye whiskey is generally going to be that you get a lot of spice from the rye grain. You get a little bit of sweet from that corn backing yep. it up. And you get a little bit of subtle... Uh, stone fruit and kind of jammy notes kind of in the mid to the finish uh, from that yeast. Yeah, Brad, on the nose of this rye, first of all, I have to say I've tried this rye three times now before we've even recorded the podcast because I just couldn't wait. And our listeners know that of all of the varieties of whiskey, rye is probably my least favorite whiskey. And this rye has every single time just knocked my socks off. Like, it's not harsh at all on the nose. It's really pleasant. It's it's very floral, and the word that kept coming to mind for me is bright. I, I got quite a few hints of of herbs. It's 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 a little earthy. There's some mint going on in there, but just like Paul said, that addition of the corn, you do get some of that classic bourbony sweetness and caramel notes that come off of it as well. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this? Honestly, I'm I'm picking up a lot of that brightness that you're talking about, Bob. I think that the the spiciness I'm smelling, it almost has this kind of cinnamony type of smell to it that I'm oh, I'm really enjoying the aroma. Well, why don't we go ahead and take a sip? <laughs> 
Cheers to you, Paul. Cheers, boys. Oh, man, that is just darn good. It almost has like a honey-type flavor on the finish. It's like a little bit buttery. I mean, this is an impressive rye. It's sweet. For me, it was sweet up front on the, on the very tip of my tongue. And the spices kind of develop throughout the tasting. Um, the finish is, is lasting. But again, this is, this is a really, I don't want to use the word subtle because I think that undersells what this rye is doing. But nothing in this rye overpowers you. And I think one of the things that I've always disliked about rye is how easily you could make a really harsh and bitter rye. But it, it has this really delicate balance of floral notes, of herbal notes, and then that classic sweetness and that great rye spice. It's just a perfectly balanced rye whiskey. Certainly balances what we're looking for. You know, there's a, I think there's a decent number of ryes that are perhaps a little focused on one uh, part of the flavor spectrum. And so we try really hard to make sure that we're balancing properly and, you know, having that complete whiskey with spice and with sweet and with uh, a little bit of fruit. Um, there's no smoke on this one. Um, you know, we love smoke, but there just isn't any here. Uh, but, you know, I think balance is really the key to a great whiskey because you have to have a lot a true depth of flavor. Yeah, Paul, and if you wanted to do a little education for our listeners, how do you pull out those different flavors, those bright fruity notes, but also those spicy notes? How do you pull those out in the distilling process? I think there's a whole bunch of different tools you have to create flavors in the distilling process, ranging from uh, the, what grains you're using, what strains of grain you're using, the yeast that you use. Uh, but it even goes beyond that because once you start your, in your production, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do to you know, bring out or suppress different flavors, uh, ranging from fermentation temperatures to fermentation time, um, what kind of fermentation you're doing, what kind of fermentation vessel it is, uh, what distillation techniques you use, what kind of barrels you use. You know, there's there, <laughs> everything we do affects the flavor. And so there's really more that we do to bring out those flavors than you can even say in a short period of time. You know, at the end, the, long story short, we do an awful lot and we really focus <laughs> on creating that flavor. <laughs> well, before we move into the next segment of our podcast, I do want to ask you about your background. Paul, you're, you were a lawyer by trade. And I'm wondering how that background kind of set you up for success in the distilling world. Did you find that you were kind of immediately able to put your talents to use in that realm? Or was it kind of like you had to step out of the lawyer mindset to become the distiller? I think it's a little bit of everything. And, you know, certainly uh, you're not going to find a lot of lawyers that are willingly going to pass by a bar, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and certainly I'm no exception to that. Uh, but I think, you know, really the key of being a really good lawyer is that ability to create, you know, a version of the future that you want. And, you know, pr you, know you try to protect your clients by making the future that they want. And being a distiller or being your own boss or being your own, you know, being an entrepreneur is pretty much the same thing. You're just creating the future that you want based on what you do. And so you kind of have to see what you want and then you work backwards from there to create those conditions for that to happen. No different than being like a podcast host or being a plumber or an electrician. Certainly being a lawyer is helpful, but you know, <laughs> the amount of work I've had to pay for from plumbers, I'd rather have been a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> 
One of the things, Paul, that I'm, I'm really kind of floored by that you've also found time to do somehow is that you served as the president and you're still on the board of the American Craft Spirits Association. So I'm wondering if you could just briefly tell us a little bit about that and then also kind of how your background in law set you up with that as well, because there's a lot of policymaking involved from what I understand about that organization. Yeah, I mean, the the ACSA is something I hold really near and dear to my heart. And, you know, we started up as a distillery. It was extremely difficult because there was you know almost nobody ahead of us uh, to give us a hand. Um, and what I found is that, you know, while there weren't a whole lot of people out there, you know, the people that were there uh, would, you know, cross the street and climb a tree to give you a hand. So you know, I owe an awful lot of my success or whatever I'm doing right now to these, you know, these dear friends of mine at this point. But these are people that, you know, like I said, you know, walked the cleat, walked across the street and climbed a tree to give me a hand and they had no obligation to do so. Yeah. And so I've tried to give back a little bit, too. And so you were a founding member of the American Craft Spirits Association. And what that is, is just kind of really working with the distillers all over the country to make all of us better. Uh, whether that is on education or policy, um, you know, throwing a good party once a year. Um, you know, it's really about all of us getting together and making us each better with, you know, education, um, friendly rivalry, um, you know, all of that. And so, you know, as a founding member, because I saw the need for such an organization, uh, I was one of the first board members because I actually got elected uh, as a board member. Um, two years later, I was the president of the organization, uh, and now I'm still technically I'm on the board, even though I don't have a vote anymore because I'm just ex officio, because that's the whole point of having a membership organization is that everybody gets to vote, not just me. <laughs> and yeah. So uh, it's all of us together. And I think it's really something that's one of the greatest things I've done is try to really help put together all of us little guys and you know, make us all better. And you can see it getting better every day. Well, Paul, we are just so impressed with everything that you've been doing. I mean, from what you've done with the distillery to your background. And, you know, I, I sent you an email the other day and was really excited to hear what this learned man of law would choose for his film, which one we're going to dissect on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you share with our listeners what movie we're going to be talking about today? Well, I, I was trying to watch it, but I got lost, you know, backstage in a stadium in Cleveland. So I kind of <laughs> forgot what uh, what movie it's all about. But um, I'm thinking it's not going to get much blacker than this one. Um, but, yeah, I had to go ahead and pick Spinal Tap. This uh, is Spinal is Tap. That's right. The greatest movie of all time. The 1984. Um, one, of my, one of my favorites. The 1984 mockumentary by Rob Reiner. This is a classic of the comedy genre. Now, Paul, I don't know how familiar you are with our podcast, but the, the whole conceit behind our podcast is that I grew up a huge movie nerd and Brad is my best friend and has not seen a lot of these movies. So every week I ask Brad, have you seen this film? And so I have to ask you, Brad, have you seen This Is Spinal Tap? Not only have I never seen it, I honestly had never heard of it before you told me that this is the movie we'd be talking oh, about today. Oh, man. This is Spinal Tap is a movie that's made in the style of a documentary about a, a rock band that's kind of, you know, over the hill a little bit. And this documentary filmmaker is following them around on their tour and all of the mishaps and misadventures that happen on this rock tour. It is just, I mean, Paul, how, how would you describe it? What's your, what was your reaction to it when you first saw it? Well, I mean, you know, when I first saw it, I was a, you know, a teen, young teenager, shall we say, and uh, 
rather into heavy metal. And I just thought it was absolutely hilarious uh, because there's all these guys and there's, you know, they're all playing it totally straight, of course, and they're dead earnest and, but they're just dumb as posts. <laughs> and it's, it's just hilarious ranging, you know, with, it's just, it's so deadpan. I think well, for whatever reason, it really kind of struck me that this, you know, this, all these straight guys doing this just inane stuff, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Yeah. And it really set all of these guys up for their future. I mean, Rob Reiner obviously had a history on, on TV and in film, but this is the first time you get that sort of Christopher Guest and Michael McKeon pairing that they would go on to do time and time again in the same sort of style that they did in Spinal Tap. But I don't know if it's ever been done better than this. And they've done some really great ones. I mean, certainly Best in Show was fantastic. And, you know, you could go back and forth and other ones, but there was something about it that really just kind of, at least for me, captured that kind of ennui and that, you know, that kind of time and place. You can kind of go back and you can see an awful lot of movies that were filmed around that same time and they get, uh, shall I say, a little dated perhaps. But I think this one just, it, you know, it continues to live and, you know, the cultural references that you get out of it, you know, remain live. You, know, you still think you know you can still see things you know jokes made about ah but this one goes to eleven or none more black or, um, <laughs> uh, hello Cleveland I had a friend I mean a friend of mine just ordered a, a chair for their living room online uh, and it got delivered and it was a small little dollhouse chair <laughs> and so of course I had to respond with a video of Stonehenge coming down on stage with uh, you know these things <laughs> these things are real. This is real life, and it's silly, and it's stupid, and it's funny, and uh, you know you're gonna kick over the the 22 inch model of Stonehenge. <laughs> I think he says uh, it was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. Yes. <laughs> so, Paul, one of the things that I, I really impresses me about this movie. I went back and watched quite a few clips from it in preparation for this. It, you know, I get to say preparation as if I wasn't just enjoying the heck out of it. One thing that really blows me away is how much contemporary comedy has borrowed from this style of movie making. Like if you're a fan of the office or parks and rec or Brooklyn nine, nine or any of those shows that are made in this sort of mockumentary style, it all comes directly from spinal tap drunk history. Um, I don't know if you've seen a uh, drunk history, which you should, if not. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's awesome. Documentary now on Netflix. These, you know, these are all, at least to my, to my limited knowledge, I think Spinal Tap kind of invented in many ways the mockumentary style. I'm sure I'm wrong on that, but you know, I'll stick to it. Uh, hey, man, you, you gave us free whiskey, so we're just going to agree with whatever you say. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I, it's, to me, it's just classic. Yeah. And you know, I, I'll never forget, you know, my dad, I had a v, you know, VHS, of course, because I'm that old. And my dad would uh, actually watch it, and he didn't realize that it was a joke. So I got sat down at the at the kitchen table uh, <laughs> and lectured about my heroes. These may not be really role models, and they're worried about the direction of life I might be taking. Um, <laughs> like it's a joke, Dad. <laughs> Don't worry, Dad. I'll become a lawyer someday, and It'll then I'll fine. start making alcohol. <laughs> I actually did get an apology from my parents at one point a couple of years ago. That if saying that if they'd known what I was going to do with alcohol, they would have encouraged it. <laughs> <laughs> now all you need to do is get an apology about Spinal Tap, and you'll be good. <laughs> well, we're I think we're even. 
I was so, in Playboy a couple of years ago. My mom had to buy a copy of Playboy to get it. To read the <laughs> it doesn't get better than that, boys. No. So, Paul, if you had to pinpoint like one scene, one specific scene that you could just watch on repeat forever, what would be your your one key scene from this movie? Uh, probably uh, either this goes to 11. I also love the scene where uh, he's talking about the little piano piece he wrote. That's a little bit of a, a little bit of Mozart, a little bit of Bach. Maybe it's a bit of a mock piece. Um, you know, the lines intertwining with lines, and then he says the na- and then he says the name of the song is "Lick My Love Pump." Yeah, um, that's <laughs> how can you not laugh at "Lick My Love Pump"? That's my favorite scene in the whole movie. <laughs> I'm like minor, I'm- it's the saddest of keys, really. <laughs> I feel like I don't really need to see the movie. I just need to hear you guys deliver these one lines and just be like, wow, this must be a heck of a movie. <laughs> That's the thing about great comedies, though, is like, you know, you, you have an anchorman or you have an airplane or a caddyshack. And these movies have entered into the public consciousness so much that you just drop a line like it goes to 11. And there's just this immediate recognition. I think comedies can can get to this place in society where you know the big dramatic movies just can't reach yep like i can uh, i can tell my kids surely you must be joking and they'll and they'll respond yeah <laughs> i'm not joking and don't call me surely right so paul as we kind of close out today first of all we want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you for the rye anytime you want to come back when when there's a bottle of whiskey showing up at our house and it says few on the front of it we know that we are in for something fantastic at this point. And so well, I just want plenty to, of whiskey. Hey, that's, <laughs> we've got plenty of stomach space. That's right. Uh, is there anything coming up at the distillery or any releases that you guys are preparing for that you'd like to just get a plug in for? Sure. We got two releases that we're kind of uh, really excited about right now. Uh, one of them we're calling cold cut. Um, and it's uh, our bourbon whiskey uh, brought to bottle strength with cold brew coffee. Uh, we're super excited about that. It's delicious. It's fun. It's new. It's different. Um, and the second one is a, a rock band collaboration we did. Um, with Spinal Tap? Uh, not with Spinal Tap, although perhaps not all that different. Uh, Alice in Chains. <laughs> oh, awesome. Oh, wow. So my guess is there's some similarities there. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, we worked with uh, the Flaming Lips a couple of years ago, and I can guarantee you there's some similarities there. Um, but, uh, you know, working with Allison Chains is, you know, certainly fantastic. I'm a huge fan and, you know, you know, certainly I'm that kind of heavy metal slash grunge tip. Well, as somebody who helps run a coffee shop, I am extremely intrigued by the cold cut that you were talking about. Oh, it's fantastic stuff. We've done probably five or six different coffee related iterations over the last couple of years, uh, trying to find the right mix of coffee and booze. And we've done some cool stuff in the past and this and that. Uh, but this, we, we think we're really onto something with this one because wow. it's, it's the best we've done. Uh, it should be hitting the market right around December 1st, I think. Um, and we're real excited. It's already out a little bit in Chicagoland um, with a wider distribution coming for sure. We cannot wait to get our hands on a bottle of that cold cut. Anytime you are in the Chicago area, if you feel like shooting just a little bit up the road to Evanston, please go check out Few Spirits and their distillery. We cannot thank Paul Hletko enough for joining us today. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And that has been Paul Hletko. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>